Man, I knew I should have worn my bib overalls today. I just had a sense that. Um, Daniel, you should do that more often, brother. You're, you're a natural. Uh, I, don't know, I don't know what it is. The funny thing is, talk about diversity of our worship teams. Uh, our fiddle player, Zach, this week submitted a recording of a rap that he wrote. I'm not making that up. So these guys are incredibly diverse musicians. We are blessed. And, um, but as Sam mentioned, uh, I'm headed to India tomorrow. Jay Burke was with me on the front end, and then the Robin Amy Huntley and Megan Frazier will join me on the back end of this trip. We'll be gone almost three weeks. We'll visit six North Wake families. We are, we are privileged as a church to be entrusted to care for six families that are living and serving Christ in India. Um, and just really a remarkable, remarkable privilege to be able to go and encourage and serve alongside them. But do covet your prayers. Um, in the one, the church email that goes out every week, you'll see an India tile. If you'll click on it, it'll pull up a prayer guide that's been assembled there. If you don't get the one, there are a few copies maybe left on the coffee bar this morning. But uh, covet your prayers. You'll notice that prayer guide is much more detailed than most, contains many more prayer requests. Largely, that's because I'm going on this trip. So there was a need for more prayer. So pray. Please do pray. If you can't pray for us every day, I, I, I know that's difficult. Pick a day. Pray for us. Um, we still have a band in Papua New Guinea that also covets your prayers. And I think our Portugal team is still out there. We've got people in Thailand. So uh, prayers are greatly needed for these trips, and we covet them. Um, but on this trip, I'm going to meet some folk that probably look like this, okay? Uh, it's a collage of faces of men from India. And I have a spiritual perception test for you. As you look at those faces, who do you think would be the least likely person to convert, to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ, just based on how they look. Maybe, maybe you might pick that guy, or, uh, or maybe that guy. Um, better yet, how about that guy, okay? I'm, I'm picking that guy, okay? But the reality of it is, we have no idea, okay? We have no idea um, who it is who's going to respond to the good news of Jesus Christ. The grace of God reaches the unlikeliest of folks, doesn't it? It's just oftentimes a surprise to us when certain people come to faith in Jesus Christ. In 1999, there's a lady named Rosaria Champagne Butterfield. There's a picture of her. She was a tenured English professor at Syracuse University a skeptic of all things Christian and a committed lesbian in a committed lesbian relationship, her academic specialty was queer theory, a postmodern form of gay and lesbian studies. Um, I can only imagine how this is being translated right now. Um, today, today, Butterfield. Uh, today, though, Butterfield is a mother of four, a homemaker, and wife of a Presbyterian pastor named Kent. They live in Durham, North Carolina. Who would have thought, right? I wonder how many people knew uh, Rosaria back in the day would have guessed that one day she'd be a pastor's wife following Jesus' mama for living in Durham. Um, do, you have, do you have people like that in your life? People that you look at them and you just think, I don't know if they would ever respond. I don't know if they would ever believe. 
I'm guessing that in the first century, if people had a list like that, um, the person that, whose life we're going to look at today, the main character in our passage today in the book of Acts, he had to be the top of that list of least likely to convert to faith in Jesus Christ. Um, his name is Saul, and I'd like you to listen just to how Saul has been described ever so briefly already in the book of Acts in passages we've been walking through. Um, you remember Stephen, chapter 7 of the book of Acts is given over to this amazing sermon by Stephen, a man named Stephen. At the end of that sermon, it says that the people cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul, our Saul, in our story today. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold his sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep, and Saul approved of his execution. Okay. It says, Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, ex except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen, made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Um, definitely, definitely sounds like a, a candidate for, for the least likely to convert list, don't you think? Who, who would have put him on their list? of people that they thought were likely open to things about Christ. But thankfully for all of us, this was not to be the case at all. So if you'll open your Bibles to Acts chapter 9, that'll be our focus today. And I would like to pray for our time there. You bow with me, please. Father, have mercy on us. And as we watch grace, lavish, transformative grace, Greater than our sin lavished on a man, we pray that our faith would be strengthened such that we would welcome it and we would withhold it from no man, from no woman. Recognize its power and beauty, Father, by your spirit and your word today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, Acts chapter 9, we find the same Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. See, for, for Saul, it wasn't enough to ravage the church in Jerusalem with house-to-house -house searches, dragging men and women, dragging women off to prison. Now he decides he has to take his crusade, his, this hate crusade against the followers of Jesus, international. And so he's going to go to Damascus, which is the, the capital of modern-day Syria, and he's going to do the same thing there. Um, see, for, for Saul, this was an expression of his faith. He was trying to purge Judaism of this heretical Jesus sect. And he was even willing to travel to a foreign land to accomplish this pursuit. I think this would make him uber likely to be the last guy you would pick to follow Jesus. Who would have thought? But God has 
unexpected plans for our man Saul. This is how it unfolds. Now, as Saul went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. And the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Um, See, what happens here is Saul has an encounter with the risen and exalted Christ on the road to Damascus that is going to change everything for him. But what what I want us to think about first is, let's think a little bit about the Christ he encounters, right? The first thing that we have to notice is that Jesus is risen and He is alive. He is not dead. The voice Saul hears identifies himself. The voice from heaven identifies himself to be Jesus. And elsewhere, Paul will write and say, Jesus appeared to me. That what I think is happening here, he's gotten just a glimpse of the glory of the resurrected and ascended and exalted Christ. And that's why he's stricken blind. It is more than his sinful eyes can bear. And he is undone by the sight. It's interesting, Revelation describes Jesus as light, the light of heaven, when it says there's a city, the heavenly city. It has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb who is Jesus. And, And Saul got a glimpse of this glory and the intensity, the purity of this light of Christ was more than he could bear. Jesus is risen. He is risen indeed. And he's ascended to the right hand of the Father. And Saul got a glimpse of his glory. And if you believe that, as, as Sam Williams is fond of saying, if you believe the resurrection, everything else is downhill. Okay? If Jesus rose, then everything else he said starts to make a whole lot of sense. Okay? Saul has seen the risen, resurrected, ascended, glorified Christ, and it changes everything for him. The likelihood of Saul's conversion has just gone way up, wouldn't you say? Okay, it's just gone way up because he encountered Christ. Now, the second thing we see about this Christ is that the Jesus that Paul encounters, he encounters as Lord of all. And as such, the expectation is that he will be obeyed. He doesn't issue suggestions. He issues, this Jesus issues commands. Listen in verse 6, right, of our passage. Jesus says to Saul, rise, enter the city. You'll be told what you are to do. He doesn't say, rise, enter the city. I have a list of options for you there. He says, rise, enter the city. You will be told what to do. The expectation is that as Lord, he commands obedience of his followers, of his disciples. You get a sense here, as Lord, Jesus prevails in someone's life. He wins in a man's life. He is this unstoppable force in Saul's life, and he is going to have his way with him. 
theologians like to call an aspect of this irresistible grace. It's just irresistible. Saul is going to be pulled into a loving relationship with his Savior. Um, British atheist turned Christian thinker and author, his name is C.S. Lewis, he wrote about his own conversion back in the early part of the last century. He said, he said, you must picture me alone in that room, night after night, feeling, whenever my mind lifted, even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him that is God, whom I so earnestly desired not to meet, that which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed, perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. Jesus will have his way. And I can't imagine anyone more reluctant than Saul the persecutor, and yet Jesus appears as Lord and rescues him. And it's not as though Saul's compelled, or C.S. Lewis, you read his writings, they're not compelled to do something against their will. Something terrible has happened to them. Um, Saul will later write about this conversion experience, about the faith that it generates this way. In the book of Philippians, he says, Whatever gain I had before this, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Eugene Peterson has, has rewritten this in the Message Bible this way. This is a beautiful rendering of it. He says, yes, all, things I, all the things I once thought were so important are gone from my life. Compared to the high privilege of knowing Christ Jesus as my master firsthand, everything I once thought I had going for me is insignificant. Dog dung. Okay? It's dog dung. And I've dumped it all in the trash so that I can embrace Christ and be embraced by Him. Well said. Jesus is Lord here in this life-changing encounter on the road to Damascus. And and in every encounter that leads to faith. Okay? It is His good, loving, powerful, irresistible work that draws men and women and boys and girls to faith, not, not ours. Okay? That's why Jesus would say to His friends, His disciples, in John 15, He says, You did not choose Me. I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. That's Jesus' work. Okay? Now, on that day, Jesus chose Saul on that road to Damascus. The most unlikely of converts, Jesus reached out and called him, chose him, rescued him. Now, there's one other small thing I want to note in this um, record of Saul's conversion, right? Look at verse 5 with me and what Jesus says to him in verse 5. Saul says, who are you, Lord? And Jesus says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It's a fascinating phrase. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Who was Paul persecuting? The followers of Jesus. But Jesus says, if you persecute my followers, my friends, my disciples, my church, you persecute me. So that how we relate to the church is how we relate to Christ. Okay? 
J.I. Packer, theologian, once put Jesus' teaching in these positive words, love me, love my church. We could spin it around here and say, if you love my church, you love me, Jesus is saying. If you neglect my church, you're neglecting me. See, this is why the church is not just another, another good club like Kiwanis or Rotary or, or whatever, Glee Club, whatever club you're in. It's not like that. It's the body of Christ in a mysterious way such that how we treat the church is how we treat Christ. It's a mystery worth pondering. How are you, based on how you treat the church, how are you treating Jesus these days? They are inseparably linked. As we've seen, though, Paul is undone by his encounter with Christ. He is blind. He cannot even bear to eat. He is praying. And at this point, another character is introduced into the story. Oops, could I have a little help there? I think something bad just happened. <laughs> there we go. Thank you. Ananias answered, um, let's see if that's the right. Some, something, something really, hang on just a second here. We have a little tech issue. Can you go to verses 10 to 12 for me? And I'm not sure that I have control anymore. So if you'd see me pretending to change the slide, you may have to help me. Now, Another, okay, so another, another player enters the story at this point in time. There was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. So the Lord Jesus now gives a vision to Ananias, and it is a very particular, detailed vision right down to a street address, right? God is stalking Saul. He is after him. He knows exactly what house he's in, and he is sending Ananias after him. So Ananias has this vision from God to go to a particular man at a specific address and heal him. And at the same time, he's informed that that man had kind of a vision within a vision. He had a vision that Ananias, man named Ananias would come to him and heal him. <clears throat> the only problem for Ananias is that man in that house is Saul of Tarsus. Okay? He was the murderous ravager of the church in Jerusalem, and he is sent here to Damascus with full authority from the high priest in Jerusalem to lock up believers of Jesus in Damascus. Okay. Guess what Ananias happens to be? A believer in Jesus in Damascus. Saul was sent to get Ananias. Okay. And so Ananias concludes that there seems to be a mistake here. You might want to check the address in the GPS, God, because you are sending me to Saul. Okay. It must be the wrong address because this is definitely the wrong guy. This is what um, the Lord says to him. Go. Go. 
You could put an exclamation point after that. Some of your Bibles actually do. Go, it's a command. Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may, again, may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. And then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. Um, that go, that go, it's a command. And Ananias, after his initial objections, he goes. He becomes what John Piper calls a leader maker, okay? A leader maker. Um, By his willingness to take great personal risk to obey God, he seeks to exalt another to a place greater than he will ever ascend to. You know, Saul, he knows now, this Saul is going to go and carry the name of Jesus before kings, We know Saul as Paul, the greatest Christian missionary ever in all likelihood. Uh, The man who wrote a large portion of the New Testament of the Bible that you hold in your laps. Same guy. But Ananias, we'll never hear of Ananias again. This is his role. He He is a leader maker. He's one who prefers another above himself. Just like Romans 12 puts it, be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Ananias is beautiful in this, and he's exemplary for us. See, because let's be honest, okay? Most of us are not going to be famous. They're not going to make movies about us, okay? Our biographies are not going to be widely read, even if you publish it by yourself on the web, okay? But, you know, some of the people that we influence might be. It might be somebody that comes to your small group, comes through these doors, you love, invite into your home, you pray for, you minister to, who might be that person in God's plan. Um, And like Ananias, we need to be good with that and recognize that in the Lord's plan, the ones who baptize greatness are significant and matter. Our faithfulness, our obedience matters. In God's hand, it makes huge difference. Consider this uh, little spiritual physics lesson that was sent to me by Pastor Ed Martin over at our exchange church plant. Watch this.
See, most of us, let's just be honest, we're five millimeter dominoes, okay? That's our part. Faithful. Faithful in the relationships God gives to us. Faithful to pray. Faithful to disciple. Faithful to speak of Christ. Faithful. And in God's hands, who knows what he will do? In his hands, we become leader makers. People who baptize greatness and watch and glory in what God will do in another. We honor another above ourselves. And so Ananias obediently goes to Judas' house on Straight Street. He finds the legendary persecutor of Christians. He heals him. He baptizes him in Jesus' name. Likely he's one of the ones who feeds him and cares for him. The very one who's responsible for the imprisonment and possibly even the death of other Christians. And where does Ananias' radical obedience and faithfulness lead? Every time you read the letters of Paul in the New Testament, Corinthians and Ephesians and Timothy and all these amazing letters, that's where it leads. You are impacted by Ananias' faithfulness. Now, for some days, Saul was with the disciples at Damascus. Immediately, he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues there, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength, confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. And here we saw... See that Saul immediately embraces his calling. Okay. He's carrying the name of Jesus before the children of Israel here. And people are amazed at his transformation. The persecutor has become the promoter. He's become the preacher. And this is what the risen Lord Jesus does. He loves and wins even enemies. Even the least likely to be converted. And he makes them his beloved sons and daughters and bearers of his name. Now, there is a bit of a puzzling statement in one of those encounters on the road. Um, when, uh, when Ananias is in conversation with God about it, the Lord says to him, Go, go, Ananias, for Saul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And then he says, For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And that just doesn't sound right, right? Saul finally gets on the right side of things. He joins the good guys, the believers of Jesus. And what's his prospect? Suffer. You will suffer for, for my name. And, it, and it, doesn't, it doesn't wait. It starts right in Damascus. Uh, look down at verse 23 at what it says in our passage. When many days had passed, the Jews evidently had, had enough of Saul and his arguments, and they plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul, and they were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Um, you skip forward a little bit in our story. Um, perhaps as much as three years of time elapses before the next couple of verses when Saul goes to Jerusalem and finds more suffering. It says he went in and out, in verse 28, he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord, and he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, 
but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus, back to his hometown. And the persecutor has now become the persecuted, and suffering is, truly does await Saul in the name of Jesus. And Saul himself warns us, it's not an oddity. What's happening to him is not an oddity. He would write in 2 Timothy that indeed all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And if it hasn't happened to you already, you have a virtual guarantee from the Scriptures that it will happen. That if you follow Jesus, it may cost you a friendship or a promotion or an opportunity or your reputation. It may cost you financially, socially, perhaps even physically in some way. When it does, remember what Saul wrote about his experiences of suffering. He says this in Romans, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that's to be revealed to us. He tells us, whatever you have to suffer in following Christ, it's worth it. It's worth it. And he knows what he's writing about because he chronicles his personal sufferings in another letter in 2 Corinthians. Saul, we know him as Paul, writes this, five times. I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, what Jesus said came true. Paul suffered greatly for Jesus' name, and he tells us it's worth it. Whatever you have to suffer, it is worth it. Okay. Now, there's another character that enters our story that I want us to consider before we end our time together. And he shows up down around verse 26. When Saul had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. As you can imagine, they were all afraid of him, okay? for they did not believe that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So you can imagine they were terrified. You know, who wants this guy in your small group, right? I'm not, I'm not inviting him into my small group because it was in Jerusalem where he was arresting people. Men and women both, dragging them off to prison. Okay. But Barnabas, he believed in Saul. Okay. He believed his story. Perhaps we should say better, Barnabas believed in Jesus and his gospel and its power to transform a man's life. He believed it. And Barnabas becomes in our story another leader maker. He's willing to take a risk for someone else. He's willing, like Ananias, to see another exalted above himself. Barnabas is for Paul. And Barnabas does show up in the book of Acts a few more times. This is always his posture. He's for Paul. He's honoring Paul. He's preferring Paul. He's supporting Paul. So, as we look at this story of this least likely of conversions... Let me underscore some things that I want to make sure we take away. First, and this is perhaps the most important one, you will never meet anyone. 
you will never, you have never, you will never meet anyone who is beyond the reach of the merciful power of Jesus. If he can rescue a guy like Saul, then there's, there is a grace greater than the sin of the people in your office and your neighborhood. There is. There's hope for them. There's a grace that's sufficient for them. And if you're here this morning and, and you've always felt like you can't be good enough to be a follower of Jesus, there's, there's a grace greater than your sin. It's for you this morning. It is. Paul's story, Saul's story reminds us of that. It also reminds us that this is God's work. Jesus saves. No one else can. Your pastor can't. Your small group leader can't. Your favorite professor, your favorite author, they can't. This is God's work. Jesus saves. Nobody else. And so prayer becomes so important in reaching out to our friends. As we pray the mercy of God into their life, it's God's work. And one of our principal roles is prayer. Third thing we learn, conversion is really about what you believe in Jesus. What you believe about Jesus, rather. That's what changed for Saul on the road. He now believed that Jesus was risen from the dead. And he was the Son of God, the Messiah, the Christ who came to bear the sins of the world. He believed that. He did not believe it before. He believed it after. It changed everything for him. This morning, do you believe that he is the risen Son of God, the Christ, the merciful Lord and giver of sight to the spiritually blind? That's what makes the difference. It's about what you believe about who Jesus is and what he has done. Lastly, conversion Coming to faith in Jesus changes everything, okay? There's a whole new orbit to Saul's world. There's a new center to his world. Um, he didn't just change sides, okay? He was changed by the side that he joined, okay? So that the Saul who was ravaging the church, doing evil against the church, Locking people up. Once he comes to faith in Jesus, listen to what the same Saul writes. This is from his letter to the Romans. Same Saul. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse him. This is a radical transformation. Repay no one evil for evil, says the former evildoer, right? But give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Conversion radically changed Paul. It's what it's designed to do for us. Okay. Now, it's been pointed out that Saul's conversion story is a, a wee bit more dramatic than most of ours. Okay? Just a touch. And, and that's true. Most of us did not see a blinding light. We didn't hear a voice from heaven. But yet, there's a commonality between Saul's story and every other story of people who come to faith. See, coming to Jesus is always, in every case, a miraculous work of God that changes everything and is available to everyone. That is always true. 
All our stories are unexpected rescues of wayward sinners. That's our story. That was Saul's story. And it was the story that I told you at the beginning of Rosaria Champagne Butterfield. Let me, let me tell you in her own words a little bit more of her testimony. She writes that before she followed Christ, before she trusted Christ, the word Jesus stuck in my throat like an elephant tusk. No matter how hard I choked, I couldn't hack it out. Those who professed the name of Jesus commanded my pity and wrath. As a university professor, I tired of students who seemed to believe that knowing Jesus meant knowing little else. Christians in particular were bad readers, always seizing opportunities to insert a Bible verse into a conversation with the same point as a punctuation mark to end it rather than to deepen it. Stupid, pointless, menacing. That's what I thought of Christians and their God, Jesus, who in paintings looked as powerful as a Breck shampoo commercial model. I'm picking up that she really wasn't excited about the Christians in her life. You picking, you picking that up? But she was writing anti-Christian articles, and one of the, she got lots of hate mailers and all that, but she got one letter that she says was really different, and it was by a pastor named Ken, and they began a correspondence that led to an actual in-person friendship. She says, Ken and his wife, Floyd, and I became friends. They entered my world. They met my friends. We did book exchanges. We talked openly about sexuality and politics. They did not act as if such conversations were polluting them. They did not treat me like a blank slate. When we ate together, Ken prayed in a way I'd never heard before. His prayers were intimate, vulnerable. He repented of his sin in front of me. He thanked God for all things. Ken's God was holy and firm yet full of mercy. And because Ken and Floyd did not invite me to church, I knew it was safe to be friends. She says, I started reading the Bible. I read the way a glutton devours. I read it many times that first year in multiple translations. At a dinner gathering my partner and I were hosting, my transgendered friend Jay cornered me in the kitchen. She put her large hand over mine and she warned, This Bible reading is changing you, Rosaria. And with tremors, I whispered back, Jay, what if it's true? What if Jesus is a real and risen Lord? What if we are all in trouble? She says, I continued reading the Bible, all the while fighting the idea that it was inspired, but the Bible got to be bigger inside me than I. It overflowed into my world. I fought against it with all my might. Then one Sunday morning, I rose from the bed of my lesbian lover and an hour later sat in a pew at the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. Conspicuous with my butch haircut, I reminded myself that I came to meet God, not fit in. I fought with everything I had. I did not want this. I did not ask for this. I counted the costs. And then one ordinary day, I came to Jesus, open-handed and naked. In this war of worldviews, Ken was there. Floyd was there. The church that had been praying for me for years was there. Jesus triumphed. And I was a broken mess. Conversion was a train wreck. I did not want to lose everything that I loved, but the voice of God sang a sanguine love song in the rubble of my world, and I weakly believed that if Jesus could conquer death, He could make right my world. 
That's an unlikely conversion. Who is on your mind and heart that you wonder, could they ever believe? Would they ever believe? Could God really? Is the grace of Jesus really sufficient for them? If you've got people that are in that category of the least likely in your mind, but yet God has put them on your heart for some reason, for some reason you're thinking about them right now. Um, As we close today, let me encourage you, um, grab a friend or small group leader or something. If you're comfortable, come forward, spend some time just praying God's mercy and favor into their life. We'll have some of our elders and pastors on this side and over here as well to pray with you. If you would like somebody to pray with you about your friend or whoever it is you're concerned about, maybe a family member. Um, Because Jesus offers a grace greater than the sin even of the least likely. Let me pray for you and then we'll sing. Father, I... I would imagine that at some point in our lives, and some of us for a sustained length of time, we were on somebody's list of least likely, least likely to believe. And, and yet, by the greater grace of Jesus, here we are. And so I pray that you would increase our faith so that that grace doesn't stay dammed up at the edge of our life, but it will flow into whomever you bring to us. No limits, no decisions for you about who you can and cannot reach who you can and cannot rescue, but we would be faithful. Perhaps in doing so, we'll be leader makers, have the privilege to be leader makers and reach someone. You will reach someone through us who will change the world. So Lord, help us to be faithful to our part. And if that begins with prayer right now, Father, I pray that you would overcome any hesitations on our part and we would boldly ask and boldly pray in the name of Jesus for those we love and those we care about. And this we ask in his great name. Amen. If you'll stand, we want to sing about that amazing grace, and I encourage you to come for prayer as God prompts.